following message was given by Raymond Goodlett on Sunday, July 23rd at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. For those who don't know me, my name is Raymond and I'm one of the pastors here. It's always a pleasure to greet you like this. Go ahead again and turn in your Bibles. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 24, verses 11 through 12. Proverbs chapter 24, verses 11 through 12. Interestingly enough, our, our series in Proverbs will meet together today with our Christmas in July theme. And so at some point, the baby Jesus will feature and help us to apply the truth of Proverbs chapter 24 here. If you're using your pew Bible, we're on page 546. I'm going to read verses 11 through 12 for us here. After that, I'll pray and, and we'll go from there. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would come and speak to us now as your children. Clear the way for your word to enter our hearts and to change us as you desire so that ultimately we will be better reflections of your grace and your love to a watching and listening world. And we ask all these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. On one level, these two short verses here in Proverbs 24 have a very simple message. They, they tell us a couple of very important things. Number one, here in verse 11, God tells us that if we see others, if we see others who are being unjustly taken away to death, then as Christians, as God's people, we ought to try to rescue them from that unjust fate. And the second thing these verses tell us here in verse 12 is that if we fail to obey God in this matter, and if we claim ignorance as the reason for that failure, then God will weigh our hearts. He'll look straight into our hearts and he'll be able to know whether our claim to ignorance is sincere or not. You see, because ultimately when we stand before God and he sits as our judge, the most important thing will not be what we don't know about others, but rather what God does know about us. And we could apply, we could apply the, the lessons here of Proverbs chapter 24 to many different things. Uh, one of those things would be inmates, let's say, people who have been charged with and convicted of a crime, but wrongly convicted, and who are now on death row, being led away to death. Well, God's word would be that if possible, you ought to try to rescue them from that unjust fate. And I don't have time this morning to go into all of it, but, but if you're interested, look up a group known as the Innocence Project. Now, I, I can't stand behind everything that they say, but I am a big fan of their work. They work actively to help people, 
and to free people who have been wrongly convicted of crimes through things like DNA testing and that sort of thing. So familiarize yourself with them at the Innocence Project. But with the rest of our time today, I want to apply what we hear here in Proverbs chapter 24 to a very specific case of people being wrongly taken away to death. And that is the issue of abortion. All right, so I, I'm going to talk about that today. And before we do, I want to say three very important things. All right, number one, very important. No one has a stone to throw at anyone else here this morning. I want to I say that again. Nobody has a stone to throw at anyone else this morning. Regardless of our past experiences. I would say regardless of our starting perspective on this issue today. We all have to remember what Jesus says in John 3, 17. You know, right after that most famous verse where he says that God gave his only son so that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish or ha- but have rather eternal life. Jesus goes on to say, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but rather so that the world would be saved through him. We come in that spirit this morning, not to condemn anyone. We don't come to condemn, but hopefully to bring clarity. We don't come to produce guilt regarding the past, but rather to hopefully provide guidance as we look to the future. The second thing I want to say is this. We're not going to approach this issue from a political standpoint. Not going to tell you how to vote, not going to tell you any of that stuff, not going to tell you what laws to try to support it. We're not going to do that. This has become a political issue in our day, but it is a deeply moral and theological issue. And that is how we will examine it as we look at God's word together. In particular, we're going to look at Psalm chapter 139 in verses 13 through 16. We'll look at Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. And then we'll look at portions of Luke chapters 1 and 2 and uh, get some help from the baby Jesus there. The third thing I want to say, third thing I want to say is that this morning at least, you'll primarily hear me using the term pre-born child to describe the, the life that is growing inside of its mother's womb. Oftentimes, you'll hear people use the term unborn children and that sort of thing, and there's nothing wrong with that. I've used that term myself. In fact, Redemption Hill Church is a network church affiliated with a ministry known as Speak for the Unborn. So we don't have, a, we don't have an issue with that term, but you'll, you'll primarily hear me saying pre-born this morning, and I don't want that to confuse anybody. All right, well, let's, let's pray one more time, then we'll get into it. Father, open, uh, open our hearts now to hear your word. In an environment of grace, free from any condemnation, but just, just to hear you speak to us about how you see human life at its earliest stages of development. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy named David Boonen. I had never quite heard of David Boonen, but... In the year 2002, David Boonen wrote a book entitled A Defense of Abortion. Now that that title harkens back to a paper that was written back in the 1970s by a lady named Judith Jarvis Thompson. Now I had heard of her. And if you've been to college in the last 30 or 40 years, you've probably heard of her and maybe even read her paper. It's become standard in a lot of universities for people to be exposed to that almost as soon as they enter the university. 
But in his book, A Defense of Abortion, David Boonin had this to say. In the top drawer of my desk, I keep a picture of my son. This picture was taken on September 7th, 1993, 24 weeks before he was born. So pause, so that's about 16 weeks into the pregnancy. Continuing with David Boonin's quote, the sonogram image is murky, but it reveals clear enough, a small head tilted back slightly, and an arm raised up and bent, with the hand pointing back toward the face and the thumb extended out toward the mouth. There is no doubt in my mind that this picture shows my son at a very early stage in his physical development. And there is no question that the position I defend in this book entails that it would have been morally permissible to end his life at this point. Now, over the decades, the defense of abortion has evolved. In our culture, decades ago, we, and we still hear this today, but we primarily would have heard a defense that sounds something like this. It is morally permissible to obtain an abortion up to a certain point in a pregnancy because prior to that point, the fetus is not yet a full human being. And since it's not a full human being, it's okay to proceed. Today, however, today, we're starting to hear more and more something that sounds like Mr. Boonin. Something that sounds like this. I know that the life growing inside the womb is fully human and innocent but I believe that it is still morally acceptable for me to put an end to this life. And furthermore, I believe that I have the right to do so. My position today will be the exact opposite of what Mr. Boonin and others are saying. I hope to make the case from scripture today for those of us particularly who believe that scripture is the very word of God. I hope to make the case today that abortion is not a morally permissible option, even where it is still a legal option. I hope to make the case that abortion gives us an opportunity to see and to apply the truth of Proverbs 24, which says that we ought to instead seek to rescue those who are wrongly being taken away to death, even, even if those being taken away to death are not yet born. So turn with me, if you would, to Psalm chapter 139, verses 13 through 16. We'll begin there. I will not go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, where we see that we are all created and made in the image of God, because our friend Robert Greene has done that already months ago, if you remember when we went through those first chapters in Genesis. And, and he did it so well, I, not only do I not need to add to it, I... I couldn't improve on it. So let's, we're going to start in Psalm 139, verse 13 through 16. And from the scriptures, we hear this there. Speaking of God, the psalmist says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, 
intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. If we look closely at this passage, the Bible teaches us that every human being, even in its earliest stages of development, is the wonderful work of God. God's very own masterpiece. Every preborn child is a human being fully made in the image of God from the very beginning and granting of life. We are, in a sense, a unique masterpiece of God's own doing. Verse 14, speaking of, speaking specifically of the way that God has knitted the psalmist together in his mother's womb, the psalmist says there, wonderful are your works. Every human being is a unique and wonderful work and creation of God himself, made in God's image. And that goes all the way back to the, the very beginning of the granting of life, where we are developing in our mother's wombs by God's design. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 13 says something very interesting. God is establishing before the eyes of his people that he is unique. He is the only God. There is none like him. And, he, and in saying that, he says, there is none like me or who else is like me. And in, in, in the end of verse 13, he says there, I act and who can reverse it? I act and who can turn it back? Which of my created beings has the ability and the authority to reverse what I'm doing? Listen, as Christians, now I'm, I'm speaking to those of us who profess to be Christians, particularly right now, who say that we, we accept these words, the words of Scripture, to be the very words of God, who claim to base our lives upon those things, to build our convictions on those things. As Christians, when God has seen fit to grant the gift of life to someone, we do not assume that we have the right to reverse that and to take that life away. So turn with me now to Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. Not only is every human being, every pre-born child fully made in the image of God and the wonderful work of God's hands, a masterpiece of His design, this goes all the way back to the very beginning of the conception of a new life. Listen closely to the lesson here of Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4 through 5. Jeremiah says there, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, biologically speaking, medically speaking, looking around at some of our, our medical folks here, biologically speaking, we do know that there is a brief period of time between the moment of conception and the moment where that conceived child is carried to the womb, implanted there, and be, begins to continue its development there. There is a brief period of time there. 
What God says right here in his word is that before, before that newly conceived Jeremiah was taken to the womb and implanted there and continued to develop there, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Friends, at the very least, this personal, intimate knowledge of God goes back to the moment of conception. The personal, intimate knowledge of the person, Jeremiah, goes all the way back to the moment of his conception, at the very least. And if we were to bring in more scripture, which for time's sake I won't do right now, we could make the case that he was foreknown long before that. God knew Jeremiah before he knitted him together in his mother's womb. And God had a special purpose for Jeremiah even before he was born. It follows, for those of us who accept scripture to be the word of God, our own experiences notwithstanding, it follows that abortion at any stage of pregnancy ends the life of a person whose identity and purpose is intimately known by God. That, that is the clear teaching of the Bible. I understand there are other ideas abounding in our culture, but that is the clear teaching of the Bible. Perhaps, though, the most compelling case to be made for the full personhood and full humanity of the preborn child will be found in the Gospel of Luke. Let's, let's turn there. Luke chapter 1, verse 35 is where we'll begin. Luke chapter 1, verse 35 and 36, to set the scene here, the angel Gabriel has just visited Mary and has announced that she is going to become the mother of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And Mary is confused, doesn't know exactly how this is going to happen. And the angel Gabriel begins to explain to her now in verse 35. And he says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So the sixth month, meaning she's gone past the five-month mark. She's on her way to six months. She's in that sixth month. To put it in terms that we're familiar with in these conversations, that's about 20 to 24 weeks in pregnancy. And so turn with me now to verse 39, and let's continue to get a little bit of this story. Mary has just heard from the angel Gabriel. Her cousin Elizabeth is at least 20 months, or 20 weeks rather, pregnant. And in verse 39, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, verse 41, pay very careful attention. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the, everybody, the, the baby, 
The baby leaped in her womb. 20 weeks, perhaps, into the pregnancy, 21 weeks. I'm not saying that this was not a full human baby prior to this point. I do believe that that is exactly the case. What I'm saying is, at this point, Scripture is explicitly clear. This is a baby. This is a baby. The baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry. So what we hear now in verse 42 is not something that can simply be ascribed to a man or a woman's opinion. This is God's word, not only as we see it in scripture, but this is the Holy Spirit inspiring Elizabeth. And these words are coming from the Holy Spirit being spoken through Elizabeth. And she says in verse 42... Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Just days into her pregnancy, Mary, who went with haste to see her cousin when she heard the announcement, just days into her pregnancy, Mary, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who gives us unique access into the mind and perspective of God, Mary is said here to be the mother already of the Lord. Elizabeth does not say, why is this granted to me that the one who is to become the mother of the Lord should come to me? She says, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come? Mary is already the mother of Jesus. And if she is already his mother it's because she already has a baby on the inside of her days into her pregnancy days this is the insight God gives us through the scripture this is the insight our world and our culture is currently without and no wonder we live the way that we do But where God's word comes in, it says the entrance of your word brings light. Light enough to dispel all manner of darkness and to put us on a path where we are better able to honor the God who created us all. Elizabeth continues in verse 44 and she says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, thee, everybody, The baby in my womb leaped for joy. Perhaps 20 weeks into this pregnancy, this this baby is so fully human that he experiences the, the joy that is said to be his here and responds to that human emotion of joy. 20 weeks into the pregnancy. The full humanity of these preborn children is not to be doubted, cannot be doubted, and the idea of, that they are less than fully human cannot be supported by any portion of Scripture. The idea that many believe obviously comes from somewhere else, and we have to consider the source of those ideas. Notice here, there, there's, there's, a, there's one more thing. One more thing I want to point out. Go to Luke chapter 2. 
This, this one for me is, is a really important one. It's really helped me as I've thought through this. In Luke chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. The angels had just announced to the shepherds that Jesus had been born. As they were keeping watch over their flocks by night, the angel brings this good news. And then the angels are going into heaven and the shepherds begin to talk to one another. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Now, it wasn't Mary and Joseph and the baby in the manger. It was just the baby lying in the manger. But, but, you see that word baby? That word baby is not simply the exact same English word that we saw referring to John the Baptist over in chapter 1, verse 41 and 44. That word baby is the Greek word brephos. B-R-E-P-H-O-S. Brephos. The exact same word that God used to describe the preborn child in Elizabeth's womb is the word that he uses to describe the newborn child lying in the manger. We gain unique access into God's mind and perspective. And God uses the exact same word to describe the preborn child and the newborn child. Which means, to God, there is no difference in human essence, human identity, and human value when we compare the preborn child to the newborn child. No difference. We tend to use language in a way that would appear to distinguish those. We reserve the word baby for a child who has been born, and maybe we use a different word like fetus to describe that child at earlier stages of development. But the scripture shows us that God applied the exact same word to the preborn child and the newborn child. To God, there is no difference in human essence, human identity, or human value between those two. So let me ask you some very important questions. If you agree, and I trust you do, if you agree that it would be morally wrong to deliberately terminate the life of a newborn child, upon what ground would we say that it is morally acceptable to deliberately terminate the life of that same child just days, weeks, or months earlier. On what ground would we say that? If you believe, and I trust you do, that all of us are made in the image of God, is it not the image of God in us that makes us fully human and equal to each other in value and dignity? Isn't it? The image of God that does that? Is the image of God not present in us at our earliest stages of development? Does he first grant life, 
have that life develop and only later bestow his image? And if you believe that, upon what ground would you believe it? Let me give you this to think about. You and I are all made in the image of God, correct? But Jesus is the image of God, the Bible tells us. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus is the very image of God. And wouldn't you know it, when God saw fit to send his very image into the world, Jesus began his earthly life. The image of God began as a pre-born child. He could have come another way. He could have come into the world as a full, at least appearing as a full-grown adult. He could have come in any way he wanted to. When the image of God came into the world, he began where we begin, as a pre-born child. And he went through every single stage of human development, even in the womb. If that is true of the very image of God himself, then what of us who are made in his image? Can we really imagine that there is some stage of our human development where we did not possess God's image? It, it doesn't make sense. Not according to scripture. Preborn children, preborn children are fully human image bearers of God all the way through. I am, I am convinced logically and theologically that this is the case. And so Proverbs chapter 24 verse 11 tells us that when we see our fellow human beings, including pre-born human beings, being unjustly taken away to death, the Christian should respond and be a part of efforts to rescue our fellow human beings from that unjust fate. And I'll, I'll end with some good news for you. Proverbs chapter 24 verse 11 does not simply leave us with a moral command or a moral obligation. It points us back to the good news of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. You have to appreciate the irony. Wouldn't you know it? That there could be no one more innocent than Jesus. There could be no one who was more unjustly led away to a place of death. But when Jesus, who was perfectly innocent, was being led away to the cross, where he would die for us, who put our faith and our trust and our hope in him, those of us who actually committed sins, when he went to the cross to die in our place, though he was innocent and being unjustly led away, he absolutely refused to be rescued. In fact, if you remember, he rebuffed Peter when Peter even intimated that that should be what happens. He said, get behind me, Peter. You have not in mind the things of God, but only the things of man. Jesus was absolutely resolute. He refused to be rescued. He allowed himself, he lovingly allowed himself to go to the place of his physical death so that you and I could be rescued from spiritual death, from eternal separation from God. And now... Praise be to God. All who put their faith in this Jesus can be born again. Not simply in the natural way, but the spiritual way. Through faith in Christ. 
And he will forgive all that needs to be forgiven. It's not even a second thought for him. So many of the things we've done in the past have been done out of a degree of ignorance. And and is not Jesus the one who says from the cross as they are literally nailing him, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. How much more will he forgive you right now? You have nothing to fear, nothing to be ashamed of. No one has a stone to throw at anyone in here, least of all me. Jesus promises that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God's response to you this morning, he comes to you for the purpose of forgiving and cleansing. That is what he holds out, not condemnation. Praise be to God. It's, it's as if John Newton, you remember his song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a, a wretch like me. Say it with me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now set free. Let's pray. Father, help us to see it. Though we were blind, help us to see it. Though we were in darkness and ignorance, let the entrance of your words bring light. Though we had been conformed to the world in its pattern, let us be relieved of that way of thinking and let us rather be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let your word do its work. We trust you that your word will now do its work in our hearts. Let your gospel prove itself to be the power of God unto salvation this morning. And let that same gospel continue to establish our hearts in the truth as you increasingly direct our hearts into the love of your son Jesus and strengthen us for every good work and every good word. We ask this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Raymond Goodlett given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.